Welcome to Plodcast, episode 59. Good to have you here. Thanks for, thanks for being so patient. Thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, tagging along. So I want, uh, in this uh, opening segment, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, about authority in preaching. In 1 Peter 4.11, it says that the one who speaks should speak as though he's uttering the very oracles of God. And this sets up an interesting dilemma for preachers. The dilemma has to do, as all um, profoundly spiritual dilemmas have to do with, is a choice between following the word of men and the word of God. Um, When a man gets up into the pulpit, he is not there as a representative of himself, and he's not there as a representative of the people. He's not there even as a representative of the session of elders. A man gets up into the pulpit in order to declare, thus saith the Lord. He has to say that this is what God wants you to hear this morning. Now, many, uh, many modern preachers have been trained to, to, to recoil away, away from this, to, to say, oh, I don't, I don't know about that, because it seems so arrogant. If you stand up in the pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord, if you stand up in the pulpit and say, <laughs> and say I have a message to you from God, um, somebody is going to say, who are you to give us a message from God? Who do you think you are? If you stand up as though you're a herald of Almighty God and say, this is what God wants you to know, and I know what it is, and I'm about to tell you, somebody's going to say, who died and left you king? The answer is that Jesus died, and he rose, and he commissioned his followers to go out and tell people about these things, and he told them, through his apostle Peter, that if anyone speaks, he should do it as the very oracles of God. Yes, but who do you think you are? That's just simply arrogant. Well, here's the, here's the problem. And this I, I think this illustrates, as few other things illustrate it, Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute light for darkness and darkness for light, sweet, sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. Woe to those, in other words, who invert everything. Well, if um, I call them fern-pacing fern preachers, let's say there's a uh, couple of ferns on the stage, and that's another problem. The place where the pulpit is is now called a stage. Um, so a couple of ferns on either end and a glass transparent pulpit and the preacher is a uh, has a mr rogers sweater on or something and and a cordless mic and he paces between the ferns and he relates to the people and he tells stories and he's open and he's transparent he talks about the spat he had with his wife in the car on the way to church he's as transparent as the pulpit is everybody walks away saying he was so open, he was so approachable, he was so nice, he was so, that sweater reminded me of Mr. Rogers, and he was so, he was so sweet. I really think that was, what was most characteristic about this man was his humility. And if someone said, oh, really? Why, why would you say he was humble? The, the, the answer ultimately comes down to, we believe he was humble because he talked about himself the entire time. He presented himself, he preened himself, he strutted himself, he talked about himself, he told stories about himself. 
Uh, but the apostle says, we did not preach ourselves, but Christ, but, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we think that conceit and vanity is humility. And if someone stands up to proclaim the word of God, not because he has any private pipeline to God, it's not because there's a hotline from heaven to his house, uh, but rather because he knows and is convinced and believes that God wrote a book. The fact that God wrote a book that can be read and studied and learned so we can learn that God has certain views on certain things because God wrote a book, we can stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. And everybody walks away with a feeling, a sensation that this man is proud, proud, proud. Why is he proud? He is proud because he didn't refer to himself once the entire time. He believes, he believes that his existence is irrelevant to the message, to the truth of the message that he is proclaiming. Uh, he seems to think that the message he's preaching would have been true had he never been born. So, a man who preaches as though he, a man who preaches as though he himself were irrelevant, is thought to be proud, and a man who preaches himself instead of the cross, instead of the the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners, that man is thought to be humble. So we call pride humility, and we call humility pride, and. It's not surprising that we get the kind of preaching that we do. I just recently finished a, a book uh, called The Magician's Twin, a very good book, and it's on science, scientism, and I forget what the subtitle is, but it basically has to do with C.S. Lewis's view of science and scientism. Uh, it's not a sustained uh, work by one author. Uh, the, gent, the gent who uh, edited it was named, last name of West. Uh, and a number of Lewis scholars contributed uh, numerous essays, uh, all revolving around the broad theme of C.S. Lewis's view of things like intelligent design, scientism, naturalism, C.S. Lewis's argument from, uh, uh, from reason, and um, and so on. It has a, even has a chapter on uh, uh, transhumanism, the, um, the movement that wants to uh, accelerate human evolution beyond the boundaries of our current biological uh, uh, limits. And so, uh, and, and it's quite striking that Lewis, who died in 1963, uh, could have laid down numerous principles that are still relevant today in, um, after a, an explosion of technology that Lewis could not have anticipated. And the weird thing is, this, uh, the things that people do with the, these technological devices are, um, when I say there are things that Lewis could not have anticipated, well, the striking thing is, it turns out that Lewis did anticipate them. So um, his, um, he wrote The Abolition of Man and That Hideous Strength at right around the same time. And in the, in the preface to That Hideous Strength, he's, he says outright that he's treating the same 
uh, themes. He's addressing the same themes, one in fictional form in uh, a fairy tale for adults, and the other as a series of um, uh, as a series of lectures that he that he gave at a university. Um, the abolition of man is all about how man's conquest of nature is going to turn out in the long run to be nature's conquest of man. So man conquers nature. He, he starts by, you know, plowing the fields and doing the things, exercising dominion in those ways that, that God wants him to. But then he, he, he goes after more and more of the natural world, subduing it to his own will until he finally gets to this um, part of nature that frequently gets in the way, and that is mankind himself. So man starts by subduing the earth and the, and the, the waters and the crops and the mines and so on, and then he starts to subdue mankind himself. And Lewis says basically in the, Lewis's argument in the abolition of man is that man's conquest of nature turns eventually into man's conquest of man, and that ultimately reduces to the conquest of most men by some men. And then those, uh, that handful of men who are conquering uh, human nature have, are doing so because they've liberated themselves from what Lewis calls the Tao, uh, the basically right reason, uh, practical reason, um, uh, the ethical code that God has built into the world and into each of us. These people have rebelled against it. And so consequently, they don't have anything to govern them while they're governing mankind. So they are increasingly driven by their just their own impulses, their, you know, their own moods, their own digestion, and so on. And uh, which in that hideous strength in the person of Frost ends in suicide, where the these impulses are just driving him. And that turns out to be, those impulses uh, turn out to be demonically, uh, demonically inspired. So uh, these essays are, are showing how uh, Lewis's prophetic insights decades and decades before are extremely relevant today. There's one essay called The Education of Mark Studdick, uh, who is the one of the protagonists in that hideous strength, and uh, uh, basically uh, reading this book, the the um, the essays are all good. Some are stellar, some are superb, and uh, it it shows that as as one one person mentioned, one of the essays is Lewis is too often thought of as sort of an avuncular uh, storyteller, uh, someone who tells nice little. Narnia stories to your kids, um, and he actually ought to be thought of as a fiery prophet. Um, he he was amazing, and this book recognizes and sees just how amazing he was. Martia in the book of James is used six times. James, be, uh, James begins by describing the genesis and destination of sin. Sin is born from desire. He says that in 1.15. And death is born from sin, also 1.15. James tells us that if we show partiality, specifically with regard to rich and poor, we are guilty of sin, 2.9. 
This is a sin that is actually quite popular in Christian fundraising circles. The guy with money is sought out, asked for his wisdom or prayers, elected to the session of elders, asked to sit on advisory boards, and all the rest of the drill. Or he is given the seat of honor, the preferred technique mentioned by James. Now, if it is really wisdom or prayer that you're after, great. If the guy if the guy made a lot of money because he is so wise and because he honored God so much, and that's the thing you're hungry to find out about, that's great. But too often it runs from the other, it runs the other way. And if, and if uh, such a person is qualified to be an elder, that's great too. And if the godly shrewdness that got him his pile is the kind of shrewdness that you think you need to learn, that's not partiality. That's the beginning of your own shrewdness. But if his chief qualification is his potential in the field of check-writing abilities, and the other qualifications don't matter or don't matter that much, then James nails the problem to the wall for us. Whenever there's money around, James encourages us to be checking our motives every 15 minutes. You know, uh, you know it is actually a fundraising letter if, first and foremost, foremost the writer quote-unquote covets your prayers. That's code, people. So if, uh, if the Christian fundraising letter says the thing we want most of all is your prayers, what that means is the thing that we want most of all is your money. James also provides us with a good definition of, of the sins of omission. That's in 4.17. The person who knows the good thing to do and who yet declines to do it, that man is guilty of a sin. If you know something's good to do and you don't do it, that is a sin. That's where the Bible identifies sins of omission as such. And when the elders pray for someone who's sick, assuming a context of humble confession, if sins were connected to the illness, they will be forgiven. That's in 515. The work of evangelism and pastoral persuasion, calling someone away from the abyss of error, is a work that covers a multitude of sins. 520. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.